In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the last two times my family has moved, uh, we got some good wisdom that you should just sort of throw everything in the garage and then kind of pick your way out as you begin to fill up the house with stuff. And that's great. Uh, nine months in, though, uh, the, um, the garage was in a bit of disarray still, such that you would walk into the garage and your heart would sink, and you would just, just feel sad. And then, and then we got some great and illustrious help to come and, and organize our, our garage um, several months ago. And when it was done, and you could see the floor again, and everything was on a wall, we would just go down and find ourselves opening up the garage door and standing and staring, and a tear would come down our cheek in great joy for what we were singing. And then, well, the winter happened, and the fridge broke, um, and um, we had to bring wildlife into our house because we were worried about bears. And it just became another mess again, and there was a part of us that just said, oh, burn it all down! I'm just done with it. I'm, oh, it's over. I, I just want it to be over. And this, this really, as you can tell, palpable feeling inside of me, uh, just that whole disorganization thing, right? And it's rather sort of remarkable that all of this stuff everywhere just has this internal effect on you, which made this little exchange I saw earlier in the week rather um, relevant. And not only relevant to my experience with my garage, but relevant in that what you're about to see and it's going to go pretty fast. It only lasts about a little over a minute um, between two voices and, voices and faces that you may be familiar with. It's, it's this little exchange that explains that phenomenon, but also orients us to the passage that we're going to hear from Jesus this morning. So lean in, hang on every word. It's going to go fast. Listen. Uh, now, uh, this is, is it Ita? Ida. Ida. Ida is going to be translating yeah. uh, for right. me today because my Japanese is a little rusty. <laughs> I'm sure your English is much better. <laughs> now, um, you uh, are a phenomenon. You, you were already known uh, for your book, um, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Right here. You were Time Magazine's, one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people, and now you have this bingeable Netflix show. <laughs> Why do you think Americans love your philosophy and uh, your, uh, your cleaning up so much? I think it's that, of course, we all have problems tidying our homes, but it's not just that, Stephen. We all have clutter in our hearts, and that's what needs tidying. Oh. oh. <laughs> Is he right? Like, I didn't expect him to have that sort of response, but in that moment, he goes like, oh, there, uh, she's onto something there, right? Like, the way she does it is you pick up something, and if it sparks joy in you, if it doesn't, you throw it away. So at our house, we pick up clothing. Nah, no, uh, maybe not. We pick up a book, um, pick up a kid, and, uh, and wait for it. Wait for Joy. Okay, good. Joy. Okay, we, get, we keep you now. Um, that's the way you do it, right? But she's on to something. It's not true. I, I love you. I love you steadfastly. 
but she's right. It's, isn't it interesting that the whole uh, external sense of cluttering in our external world really speaks to that which exists within us, in our own hearts? And so, yeah, no wonder we, we feel that real consternation when our world outside of us is without order. We, we feel that disorder within our own. But I think we'd have to be honest with ourselves is that it, the nature of our heart, decluttering doesn't quite capture just how the problem is. Um, tidying up our heart is, is maybe to uh, speak euphemistically, to kind of domesticate what the real issue is. We need something more than tidying. We need something like transformation. And organizing my garage, it might help, but it isn't the solution. And that is in part why we are listening to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Because as we've said in the past, it is an outline, a broad outline of the highest good of what constitutes the better way and of what allows us to find that sweet spot of life whereby we walk, if you will, with an uncluttered heart, unencumbered by any number of things that we've allowed to fill it and which we then continue to feel its pull and being diminished by it with every day that we endure it. But in listening to Jesus in this outline, we realize that when it comes to the highest good, It is not so much about what you think or what you do. It has everything to do with the condition of your heart. And we've said that already and we'll say it till we're done. And so in this talk, in this beatitude that that Woody's going to read here in just a moment, we're going to consider what is the nature of that transformation? What does it mean to have something more than just a tidy heart or an uncluttered heart, but a transformed heart? And so in this one beatitude, we're going to hear three things. What inspires that transformation what the nature of that transformation is, and what we need for it. What inspires it, what the nature of it is, and what we need for it. So if you're able, Woody's going to read from Matthew 5, verse 8. If you're able to stand, would you? Flip it on there for you. There we go. Thank you. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Mm-hmm. All right. Thought experiment. <clears throat> don't raise your hand. Don't talk. But imagine what would be for you the best thing ever. What is your greatest desire? What is the most unimaginable thing you wish would come true? What is that thing? Think of it. Kids, what would be the best day ever? It's in your mind. We've all got a list. And if we were to compile that list, we would, we would speak of it with glee and wonder, and we might even have a tear come to the, the rim of our eye, and all sorts of things would, would just be absolutely adoring for us. We would, we would jump on that. Jesus, as he has in every one of these Beatitudes, is making for us a promise on the back end of the beatitude. And in this beatitude, he is making a promise to us again, but one that is unlike anything else that he said before or will say after. And he said that that promise is this. The greatest thing ever, the greatest thing you will ever know is to see God. 
No matter how much you desire, no matter whatever day you might orchestrate for yourself that would be full of fun and enjoyment, no matter what dish you might savor, no matter what change you might make in your own life or what change you would like to see in the whole world, all of that, their goodness and their loveliness notwithstanding and not diminishing, the greatest thing ever will be for you and I to see God. That's the promise. And that's his argument. As soon as he says that, though, we think to ourselves, wait a minute. See God? I thought he wasn't seeable. I thought he kind of did the invisible thing. What does he mean by seeing God? You got to let the, the scripture speak for itself when it uses a word like see, that there's a sort of a, a range of possibilities for what it might mean there. So you've got to press into the stories in which you find people talking about seeing God to grasp what Jesus means by it here in the Beatitude. So just take, for instance, Moses. We've heard Moses the last few weeks in different readings, especially the time in Exodus. Towards around Exodus 32, 33, Moses has been told, you're going to go to the promised land that I've set aside for you. And Moses says, please help me to know, Lord, why I should believe that you're going to do this. What sign will you give me that this promise will be true? And God says, my presence will go with you. And Moses, in so many words, even though God has, has shown himself attentive to Israel's affliction and their suffering, and even though God has shown himself powerful to remedy that affliction by delivering them from Egyptian bondage, Moses still has the chutzpah to say unto the Lord, show me yourself. Show me your glory. I want to see you. And God says, no can do, man. You'll die. You see me in my fullness, it'll kill you. But God does say this as a concession. I, you can't see me in my fullness. I will show you my goodness. I will show you a portion of me. I will show you why I am good. And I will disclose to you who I am by my voice. But I'll show you enough. And you know what for Moses? It's enough. That's enough of a sign. And so it says in mysterious words that God showed the back of himself to Moses. What? I don't know either. But what he saw was enough. And enough for Moses to proceed into that moment in his ministry in which he had nothing other than God's word to enter into that time that required great courage. He was enough. He'd seen God because that's what he wanted. That's Moses' story. In another sense, it's Job's story. You know Job's story. He enters into an unimaginable suffering. So much is taken from him. So much is laid upon him. So much affliction he has to endure such that towards the end of that suffering... Though he doesn't know it's the end of his suffering. He says unto God, you make no sense. And not only do your ways make no sense, your ways appear to have no justice to them either. And within a few chapters, God says to Moses, son, time to gird up your loins. Because what you speak is a half truth. And therefore God goes through a litany of things that speak to his own glory and to his own creation, not to condemn Job, but simply to illumine him as to the reality of himself. And in that moment, in chapter 42, that very famous line that Job utters, I have heard you with the hearing of my ear, but now I see you. And I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. 
Job didn't get a single question he had answered. God didn't tell him a single thing about why he endured that suffering. But for Job, it was enough. And though the scene was of a character that sort of an understanding, a grasp of who God is in a way that he didn't have before, it was enough. It's all he needed. That's a way of seeing. That's Moses' story. That's Job's story. Why are both Moses and Job asking to see God? Because that's what they know they most need. Because they know that would be the greatest thing ever. Such that when we get to the New Testament, and we hear in John's Gospel, in the very first chapter, it says, no one has ever seen God in his fullness. True story. True statement. And yet the one who is at Abraham's bosom, that is Jesus, he has made the Father known. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the exact imprint The expressed glory of who God is, according to the author of Hebrews. And there in John 14, Philip says unto Jesus, would you show us the Father? Show us him. Who is he? And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen him. Why would Philip ask such a thing? What is it about seeing who God is? It's not simply curiosity. It's about this impulse to want to understand things to a degree that nothing else will satisfy. It is to see into the heart of reality. Astronomers, they will get into their big telescopes and they will probe into the furthest reaches of the universe to see the very limit of what one can see, to see in a universe that is expanding at a rate we could barely fathom. Why? Because they want to know what it was like when here at the beginning, how all of this could originate from that kind of moment. When biologists pull on their electron microscopes and they look at the very building blocks of, of life, what are they doing? They're trying to make sense of how all this organization could ever come to be. When physicists smash their atoms and their little particle accelerators, what are they out to do? To get to the very fabric of reality. How could all of this be? What is the very building blocks of reality? Astronomers, biologists, physicists, they've all following this impulse to understand what is in, beneath, and under the fabric of reality. To see behind the veil. And I think in some ways that approximates the very impulse that Moses, Job, and Philip, and all of us are trying to get to. We want to see things in a way that helps us to make sense of our reality when nothing else makes sense. What they're trying to see is something greater. They want to see the wonder. They want to see the awe. They want to see the beauty of things. C.S. Lewis's last novel was a retelling of a Greek story of Cupid and Psyche. It was called Till We Have Faces. And in that story, the protagonist is a young daughter of a king named Arul. She's sort of a homely figure. She's very conflicted in her desires, and she gets pushed and pulled in all sorts of directions about what she should most want. And yet, as the story proceeds and she ascends a mountain to to kind of understand uh, the gods, she realizes something about herself. She realizes in a famous line that the sweetest thing in all my life, she says, has been the longing to reach the mountain to find the place where all the beauty came from. She might have longed for all sorts of wonderful things, and yet what she most wanted was to see where it all came from, where all the beauty came from. Jesus' argument to us at the latter half of this beatitude is that the greatest thing you will ever see is God because it was there where beauty lies. Because in God there is beauty. 
And what C.S. Lewis said in fictional form there, in that last novel of his, he also said in his most famous of sermons, The Weight of Glory. He said something to all of us about every one of our experience in the search for beauty. And we look for it in all sorts of ways. But he said that our search for beauty is understandable. And yet he spoke it with a certain word of warning. And he said this about our search for beauty. He said the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. That's a long way of saying this. The reason you keep reading that novel over and over again, the reason you will stare at a painting for an hour, the reason you will play that love song in your player over and over again is not for what you find in it. It's for what stands behind it. And Jesus' argument is that what you most long for is to see God, to see where all the beauty came from. Now, I say that, and it it may make sense, and you may even nod your head in approval and acknowledgement, and yet, do you believe that? Is the the very idea of seeing God, of grasping Him, understanding Him, knowing His presence, is is that your greatest longing? My wife pointed me to an interview that, that came out recently with Frank Borman. He was an astronaut. He flew on Apollo 8. He, post-astronaut career, becomes the CEO of Eastern Airlines. Um, Last year was the 50th anniversary of Apollo 8, which was the first time men had ever orbited the moon. And this interviewer from um, This American Life thought, I have never had a chance to interview an astronaut. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to get to talk to a guy that must have been on pins and needles the entirety of the flight. And so he, he goes to Frank Borman's house. He's now 90 years old and yet has all his faculties. And so he sits down with Frank Borman. And he says, so, first of all, just parting question. Do you like sci-fi? And he says, nah, not really. Have you ever seen an episode of Star Trek? Ah, it's all junk. So the interview is starting rather well, right? (laughs) And eventually the the interviewer kind of gets into what it was like to be on the flight. And so he just sort of walks him through recollecting what it was like to take off and to know that he'd be one of the first humans ever to leave Earth orbit. And so he says, what was it like to be weightless for the very first time? Was it awesome? And Frank Borman said, "Um, yeah, for about the first 30 seconds. Oh, okay. Well, you know what, Frank... Just tell me, what was the highlight of your flight to the moon? And Frank Borman says, well, you know, there was a point where um, we kind of looked out the window and saw the earth on the horizon, and we realized, wow, that's like where everybody we know and every memory we have kind of lives, and there's the earth. And the interviewer says, you mean the best thing about going to the moon was looking back at the earth? Really? Yeah, pretty much. 
this large thing that nobody in the history of humanity had ever been that close to, this thing where they, no one had ever left Earth orbit ever, and the most exciting thing about the trip was looking back at the Earth. In other words, Frank Borman, on the whole, was rather, by the moon, unimpressed. I wonder if that captures something about how we think of when somebody says that the greatest thing ever for you and I will be to see God. The one thing that might be the most clearest in our face, that might have the holdest, that might fill our frame to the greatest degree ever imaginable and might have the most glory we've ever been encountered, and yet we're looking back over our shoulder at the thing that we're more familiar with. Could it be? And yet it is seeing God that's meant to inspire a transformed heart. What do we do? Well, maybe we need to think about the nature of that transformation. And not just what inspires it. Not just seeing God as the inspiration to a transformed heart. What is the nature of that transformation? Because, you know, uh, we could come up with any sorts of opportunities or ideas and we might get it all wrong. What does it mean to be transformed in heart? Jesus says it on the front end of the Beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart. Who will see God those who are pure in heart and we think to ourselves perhaps well uh, that counts me out if I have to have a pure heart then fat chance I'll ever see God because I may have been more offensive to more people before 9 a.m. than some of you are all day what do I do with that if the condition of my heart would seem to be related to my seeing God in his glory and his fullness? And I would first say to you, if that is your dreadful thought, take heart. Jesus knows who he's talking to. Because later in Matthew's gospel, he says to the Pharisees, you know, physicians, um, they come and those who are well don't need them. Physicians come for those who are sick. As if to tell us all, I see you. I know who you are. I understand my clientele. I know you're sick. I know purity in heart is not your natural default place. It's the opposite. But that gets us then to what Jesus then means by purity in heart if he knows that all of us are lacking in that very thing of which there is blessing. See, who does Jesus talk to most often with the most ferocious words It was Pharisees and scribes and priests. And why did he have the strongest, fiercest words for them? Because when they thought of their own purity, they usually thought of it in terms of what was external, what was in their heritage, that they were of the tribe of Abraham, that they were set apart as the people of God. That was made them pure. Or that they were very fastidious in observing all of the religious requirements of the law, that if they just did that, they're pure. And Jesus says, that's not it. What's in your background and what's in your foreground is not nearly as important as what is in your, and here's a word I'm borrowing, in your inscape. The landscape of your interior. That's a, that's a line from Jared Manley Hopkins. Your inscape. What is true in the innermost part of you. And um, you and I, you know, we, we read those parts of the Pharisees and, and we think to ourselves, yeah, that's pretty nutty to think that, if you, that you, because you're of the heritage of, of Israel and that you perform all these religious duties that you would think yourself pure. And we think that's nuts. And yet, friends, look, <clears throat> how many of us have so many other things that we go after that is more important to us than really the condition of our heart? 
How many things are we aspiring to or we're longing for and we're subjecting ourselves to or enduring to no end and we consider those more important than what is really the condition of our hearts even if any one of those aspirations is diminishing our heart? Maybe it's not so nuts for Jesus to go and center in on the inscape than anything else we're actually thinking or doing. So what does he mean by being pure in heart? I think there's two things. I think to be pure in heart is first of all to have an undivided heart. And I'm taking that from what you hear in the psalmist in Psalm 86 where he says, purity, unite my heart, O Lord, to fear thy name. He's talking about a heart that is, that is undistracted, that is um, unconflicted, that is not um, bracing with all sorts of competing interests. It's just sort of singularly focused on what God wishes and that that heart is committed to that. And so, you know, a Danish philosopher named Kierkegaard, he says, purity of heart is just to will one thing, to want one thing and to, to seek that thing. That's, that's purity of heart, is having an undivided heart. And to borrow a, a rather safe, innocuous example, uh, you may, when you were a kid, read Bill Keen's uh, comic strip, The Family Circus. Um, they may still print that. I don't even know if Bill Keen's still alive. But um, Family Circus, right? And every other Bill Keen strip would show some kid on the dotted line thing, right? He would map the dotted line where one of the kids would go. And so in this one, here's Billy. Mom says, would you take these out to the mailbox? And Billy says, I'm on it, right? And then what happens? Well, look where the road goes. Well, look where the path goes. It's not a straight line. It's all over the place. Yeah, I want to do what mom wants, but I also want to jump on the couch. I want to pet the dog. I want to go to the bathroom. I want to splash in the pond. It's all over the place, right? Because he's got all sorts of interests in addition to this interest of obeying with his mom. And, and it's fine, right? It's, it's okay. It's what kids do. And there's no problem in that. There's nothing immoral about what he chooses. But that's a picture of a divided heart. One in which what you want and where your other heart is interested is kind of in competition. And so I've mentioned last week that when Jesus speaks of the word hypocrisy, he's not thinking of it in ways we do where we think about you say one thing and you do another. Jesus' version of hypocrisy is where you do something, but you've got another motive at work there. And you've either deceived others or deceived yourself into thinking that you really want that one thing. And so Billy, you know, that's a safe little harmless existence or example of a divided heart. But a lot of times a divided heart is not safe and not cute. You know, sometimes you'll say, you know, I just did that for them because I loved them. And then if you take a little reflection, you go, I'm not sure if it was really love for them. You know, why is it that some of us smother other people? Or or why do we let ourselves be smothered? Is it because we really love them? Or do we need them too much so that we won't, so that we're willing either to be a steamroller or the steamrolled? Or why do, we, why do we tear into people with words and just say, I'm just speaking the truth in love, when in fact there's just a little bit of thrill at being able to take somebody down? Or when we actually choose to be silent rather than we, we have the opportunity to say something that needs to be said and we say, oh, I, I don't want to say that. I don't want to hurt them because I love them. When in fact, it's not really them you're loving. It's more you. It's a divided heart. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're really doing one thing when actually we're motivated by another. 
Or sometimes we'll say, I just did that because I want to make a difference. You may be. But a lot of the times when people say, I want to make a difference, it's more, I just want to feel important. And history and our own experience can point to any number of examples of people that say they're out to do good when actually they're just out for it for their own glory. It's a divided heart. And if your heart's divided, it'll lead you in all sorts of places that you don't want to go. Purity in heart is an undivided heart. Purity of heart is also an undefiled heart. You heard in our Old Testament reading the line from Psalm 24 that asks the question, Who shall ascend the holy hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. A pure heart and undefiled heart is one that loves what God loves and despises what God despises. That is not drawn in by anything that God is not drawn in by. It seeks to keep one's heart whole and fully attuned and sensitive to God. My wife conceded to me this week. She, in doing some housework of late, she's been kind of drawn into a, um, a sitcom. Well, that's not a sitcom, it's just a storyline. And watching several episodes of it, and she just conceded that at some point she realized, you know, I can't go there anymore. I, I can't watch that anymore. It's doing stuff in me. Like, like, it never resolves. There's no redemption. And I'm always feeling like, it, I'm just going deeper, deeper into the darkness. And I said, honey, um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is not the edgy, boundary-pushing story you think it is. <laughs> it wasn't that. <clears throat> but in that moment, she's conceding that her heart is something like the proverb says. Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows springs of life. An undefiled heart is concerned with what it sets before one's eyes. And we'll talk about that later, about a singular eye that Jesus will speak of. But an undefiled heart is what longs for what God longs for and despises what God despises. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to outline for us what does it mean to seek that which is without defilement. And we hear that. And we understand the difference between an undivided heart and an undefiled heart. And we still think to ourselves, I'm out. Why are we talking about this? I'm not there. And so I need to say again, for Jesus to say, blessed are those who are pure in heart for they shall see God. He is not saying, don't bother knocking on my door until you get your heart pure. He knows to whom he speaks and why he needs to say those words. And what he is saying to us here and implicitly what's in the background of his words is nothing less than what you have heard at other times in the Old Testament. When in Proverbs it says in chapter 20, who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin. Who can say that? No one can. No one can. And when the psalmist says in 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, if God, you were going to hold us up to scrutiny and say that we would only be able to stand in your presence so long as we passed every test, who could stand? None of us. Blessed are the pure in heart, but none of us are pure in heart. Which therein lies the struggle and the challenge and the question. Gregory of Nyssa was a, a theologian of the 4th century. And he comes across a, a, a saying like this and then looks deeply into his own heart and says to us and to himself, is the Lord urging us to do something beyond our nature? 
Has he gone beyond the limitations of human capacity by the enormity of his command? In other words, has he set us up? Has he held out to us a standard and then says, you'll never get there? If that's the case, then what's the point of us talking about this? If having a pure in heart is so crucial to seeing God and yet is so impossible for us, then what do we do? Where do we go? If we're inspired for transformation by seeing God and the nature of our transformation is being and having an undefiled, undivided heart, then what do we need for that ever to happen? We need the one who said these words and who showed their content. We need the one who not only saw God, but who was God. And we need that one to die. We need that one to die for us. To reconcile us to the reality of things that our hearts are not pure and yet are made to be pure. We are to one to look to the one who, by his own death, not only reconciled us to God in terms of relationship, but began the process of reconciling our heart to his, that it might be pure, that it might be undivided and undefiled. And so this one who saw God, who was God, who died as God and sent the spirit of God, we need him if that transformation is ever to take place or to ever to be true. But I want to make sure that you're really clear on that. Because there's a way of hearing it properly and mishearing it dreadfully. And to make sure you hear it properly, I want to bring to you a poem. Anybody read a poet named Mary Oliver? A few of you? I am late to the Mary Oliver bandwagon. Um, so late, I did not really know much of her until she died last month. But the one poem that I found most people quoting in the wake of her death was a poem entitled Wild Geese, which I find very ironic because I'm hearing all the geese over my head this week, right? But in the first six lines of that poem, she writes, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Stop there. What? I understand when I read those lines why that kind of idea would be so compelling today. Because if you believe that, you kind of feel like you've been liberated from this idea that I have to live up to some sort of standard in order to feel myself free and acceptable to myself or to somebody else. That would be liberating. And, and to be liberated from the idea that I've got to demonstrate you know, enough remorse to show my devotion for all the errors that I've made. And, and instead, just to be liberated to the idea that I just got to kind of follow the loves of what is just sort of natural and instinctual to myself. That, man, that's kind of an American anthem, right? Just relax about trying to live up to something and stop trying to show everybody that you're sorry for what you did. Just follow it, right? And I, I sat with that and I, I reflected on that and I thought, you know what? In one sense, she is right on when it comes to the gospel. You do not have to become good to become his. You do not have to demonstrate 
arduous displays of repentance for all the awful things that you've done in order to become part of his family. You become part of the people of God, not because of your goodness, but because of the goodness that Jesus shows us in himself and by his death. She's right. You do not have to be good to become part of his family. You do not have to repent for every wrong thing that you've done. You would never get through the list. In that sense, she's right. But in another sense, though she nails it in one way, she misses it another way. Because in the next line of her poem, she says this. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. As I reflect upon her poem, I realize most of the time when I have just followed my soft animal body to love what it loves, that cuts me off from the good. And I wonder why. But to listen just to whatever is instinctual or natural in me, that is to invite into myself the entertaining of half-truths that cut me off from what is good. And therefore, whereas Jesus would say to Mary, you're right, no one has to be good to become mine, I think he would say, with all due respect, Mary, if you will listen to what I say is good, you will find something more than just avoiding opportunity or avoiding guilt. You will find life. In following what I find to be loving and good, you will find that good in me. And that's worth following because that's where life is. I know why Mary Oliver, I don't know it. I'm only surmising. I never talked to her. I have a feeling why Mary Oliver would write a poem like that. It's kind of like a mama bear thing where you want to protect people you love from being tempted towards self-loathing and self-hatred. And believe me, when you, when you rattle off a whole list of virtues and ethics and you find yourself failing all of that, what are you tempted to do? Self-loathing, self-hatred. And she's out to say, don't! But hearing this beatitude properly is less to do with the content of which it speaks and rather the tone with which you imagine it being said. And by that I mean this. Some of you might hear this beatitude and think it comes to you like this, like a hard-bitten, judgmental voice. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's a coercive way of moving us towards the good. But rather, I think, though we don't have his voice recorded, that Jesus might say it with this tone. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's not a coercive word. It's an invitation word. It's an offering word. Oh, oh, let me show you. Take my yoke upon you and you will see him. So what does it mean to hear Jesus offering not a coercive word to purify your heart, but an invitation to purifying your heart? How do we purify our heart when we know our hearts are not pure? I'll land this plane by saying three short words. To purify your heart, you have to first of all see him. And that I mean see him as he sees you, which we've said from the very beginning of this worship service. In 1 John 3, you will hear us, you will hear him say how we're to be seen. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, 
We're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you would purify your heart, you must see with the eyes of faith how God sees you in his son. Your heart will never be purified apart from that. The invitation is not to get your stuff together. It is to see yourself as you are seen. And you are seen as beloved because of what Jesus has done. It starts there. It has to. There's no getting around it. But when you see him as he sees you, then you must see your own heart. And there at the end of Paul's famous ode to love, he says this, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Like John, he's looking forward to the day when there will no longer be seen by the eyes of faith, but the eyes of sight. But now... With that hope, what does he do? He sets aside that which is childish, that which is divided and defiled. In other words, he takes a good look at his own heart. He reflects upon its condition. It means that you and I, on a regular basis, have to ask ourselves, why are we doing what we're doing? What is the motivation? The Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, he says this, look, Each man in the presence of God has the task of paying attention to himself. It does not mean you become paralyzed in fear for all the ways in which you see impurity in your heart. That's not paying the attention to yourself that he intends. But neither is it so being so indifferent to your heart that you never think about why you're doing what you're doing. The spirit of the living God will awaken you to all those motivations and some of those motivations need to be evaluated and interpreted and sometimes repented of because why you're doing what you're doing is taking you in places you don't want to go. You have to see him. You have to see your heart. And then with a twist, I'll give you one more from a Lutheran pastor you may have heard of named Martin Luther. You want to purify your heart? Go see and attend to the ones who are in need of mercy. He said, Seek God in the miserable, erring, and laboring ones, for that is where one sees God. There the heart becomes pure and all arrogance lies down. You want to take, you want to shoot, take a, a, a warning shot across the bow of your pride? Go attend to those who are in need of mercy. Go give yourself to their need. Because when you're doing that, it's forcing you to stop thinking so much about yourself. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to become a ransom for many. That is how you and I might take Jesus' offer, his invitation to purify our hearts, that we might see God a little bit more now and see him face to face in time. So to close, I wonder if you might sing something with me. Something that you might know from your childhood. It's just one stanza. If you want to sing it with me, you can. If you don't know it, 
or don't want to, let us sing it to you. But let's just sing Spirit of the Living God. And when we get to that third line, it's melt, fill, mold, use. I always get those wrong. Melt, fill, mold, use. Let's ask. Look, I know we don't desire God or to see him much. And sometimes we have to ask for the longing before the longing can appear. And he knows that too. So as we sing, let it be your prayer. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, fill me, mold me, use me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh 